Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 351, Bread in Parliaments. It is a general theme in political life, is it not, that after a while, everyone just gets a bit bored with a government. However popular or successful you might have been, there just comes a time for a change, and generally speaking, even with the likes of Elizabeth. When the old monarch or political party shuffles off the political coil into the political fields of Elysium, wherever they might be, to endlessly debate or brief secretly against each other for eternity, everyone is filled with hope for the new regime. There is, in brief, a honeymoon period. Even if it might be as brief as that which greets each new manager of Derby County before the stream of disasters inevitably follow. And then, you know, well, it ends. Well, Charles, as we mentioned last week, swept into his new role on the crest of a wave of optimism, not just because it's always nice to have a change, although that's part of it, but because Charles and his pal, the Duke of Buckingham, had rather suddenly switched from Spanish match to Spanish natch, and the old king who appeared to have been standing in their way was now out of the way. Edward Cook, who would prove a difficult customer for Charles in some ways, had spoken in the last Parliament about Charles as a sort of Henry V Black Prince combo, and look, you don't get higher praise in English history than that, let me tell you. This young prince would now lead them into a repeat of the glories of the Elizabethan Golden Age, without all those famines and nasty bits of the 1590s, which had all been forgotten now anyway, so that already the exploits of Drake and the Spanish Armada 
had passed smoothly from current affairs into the sepia-tinted world of legend and perfection, without even bothering to pause to pick up £200 or pass go. Now, their new prince was going to deliver the Golden Age Mark II, the return, the sequel. No one ever said the expectations of the Gen Pub were reasonable. Also, it has to be said that Charles was happily pretty experienced in the business of running and managing parliaments, or so it seemed. Someone described Charles as having been bred in parliament, by which they didn't mean he was about to be made into toast, slathered with butter and marmalade and fed into the maw of democracy, but that he was experienced at managing and running parliaments. Although actually if the cap fits and all of that. But look, the 1624 Parliament he'd been involved in had probably been the happiest and most successful of James's entire reign. So presumably he now knew what he was doing and all would be well. In the spirit of optimism, let me tell you how one John Elliot, MP, remembered the atmosphere at the time. You will hear the name John Elliot again, and honestly, it will rarely be as a Charles I fanboy. But in March 1625, he was still a client of the Duke of Buckingham and eager to please. King James being dead, and with him the fearful security and degenerate vices of a long corrupted peace, in hope and expectation laid aside, with the new king a new spirit of life and comfort possessed all men. This new spirit and hope, let it be said, infused itself with Charles and Buckingham to boot. Obviously, they were both genuinely upset at James's death, and Charles's thoughts ran quickly to Buckingham too, whom he knew would not be able to be other than worried about how his new status would change with the new regime, and so he reassured his friend and mentor immediately. I have lost a good father, and you a good master. But comfort yourself. You have found another that will no less cherish you. Charles took his friend back in his coach with him, confirmed him in all his offices, and had a golden key cut as a symbol that he would always be open and accessible to his friend. Now, this wasn't necessarily the best news to the political classes. After all, with Buckingham sitting in the bath of royal patronage, quite a lot of the water of opportunity had left said bath, given the amount of patronage water that Buckingham displaced. But nonetheless, the Venetian ambassador was able to report that Charles's first actions met with approval. He was a much more austere man than his father, and court protocol reappeared immediately, just as it had been in good Queen Bess's time, when the glorious sun of Tudor and glory had shone over the nation. The king's reputation increases day by day. He professes constancy in religion, sincerity in action, and that he will not have recourse to subterfuges in his dealings. On the 7th of May, they buried the old man in a ceremony that cost 50,000 quid, which is quite a party. Charles then hoped, nay, expected, that Parliament would be a doddle. He'd been so popular at the last one. This is what would happen in this order. 1. They'd reconvene the Parliament, which had only been prorogued, not dissolved anyway in 1624, so that could only take a jiffy. Less than a jiffy, probably, no more than a jiff. 2. Parliament would vote him loads of money to fight the war that they, after all, had been asking for themselves. 
Three, with all that cash, they would raid and destroy Spain's global empire, bring the House of Habsburg to its knees and reinstall Elizabeth and Frederick to their rights in the Palatinate. Four, Charles would live a long and happy life, collect lots of paintings and be generally godlike. Number one proved an annoying problem, though, because it turned out that the death of a monarch automatically dissolved Parliament, so there'd have to be writs and elections and all that jazz. The old lot couldn't just reconvene quickly. OK, so in the words of Meatloaf, heaven can wait. Just a few weeks. Nonetheless, it was bound to be a shoo-in to glory. And before that, Buckingham was dispatched to France, to finish the job started by the Duc de Chevreuse and bring the new Queen Henrietta Maria to her new home and husband. This Buckingham was duly dispatched to do, and he had another remit too. There had been a few objectives to the French marriage. Obviously, married bliss was up there, tick, but there was also the matter of £120,000 worth of dowry, tick. But also, it was of course a marriage to bring two nations together in the kind of perfect peace, harmony, amity and, may I say, love in which France and England had always lived. I'll fight anyone who says it ain't show. Come on, a dare A corollary of that should be not just a marriage alliance, but a military alliance too. Buckingham was a grand man with grand ideas. He thought big, and for him, the objective was a grand anti-Habsburg alliance, bringing together Denmark, the German princes, the Dutch, Swedes, and now France. Together, they would crush the evil empire and Spain. To get this sorted, Buckingham needed to get the man who effectively now ran France, Cardinal Richelieu, on side. Now, Buckingham was a man who knew how to strut the big stage. He's no shrinking violet. But in Richelieu, he meets one of the classic figures of European history, doesn't he? I admit I'm rather affected by his Trois Muscatiers and all that stuff, and I've not studied the history in any serious way for, oh, 40 years. But I don't think anyone would argue with me when I say Richelieu was out of the top drawer of European statesmen, wasn't he? And the sort of chap who focus, focuses on doing what is required rather than doing the best he can. To give a bit of background to both Buckingham and Richelieu's conundra, both wanted the Habsburg chin to bite the dust well enough, so that's OK. But there's an order and priority thing going on here, wherein lay Lucifer, lying on the bed in satin sheets, playing lazily with his tail. For Richelieu and his boss Louis XIII, there was the problem of the Huguenots. They and their leaders, the two brothers, the Duc de Rouen and the Duc de Soubise. Henry IV's solution for the French religious wars, the parallel living based on the Edict of Nantes, was gradually unwinding a bit, although it would take time to completely and brutally unravel during the reign of Louis XIV. At the French court, and this is relevant to the story of Mr and Mrs Charles King too, a group of Catholics had become very influential, the Dévots, under the leadership of Pierre de Berulle. The Dévots were an ultra-Catholic group, if I put it, may put it like that, children of the Catholic League, who thought all this accommodation with Prots thing was just a bad idea. Pierre de Berulle was chaplain to the Queen Mum, Marie de Medici. Politically, they wanted alliance, not war with the Catholic Habsburg. 
As far as those Habsburg chins were concerned, they wanted them grinding not dust, but Protestants. Politically, Richelieu and his rail politique outwits them, but culturally they remain very influential and will influence both policy and the attitude of the king's young sister, one Henrietta Maria. Anyway, so for Richelieu and Louis, Rouen, Soubise and the Huguenot were an unacceptable drain on France's strength and the absoluteness of French royal power, a sort of state within a state. And things had blown up because the crown had got involved in the region of Béarn, re-established Catholicism there, so the fragile balance established by Henry IV was damaged. The Huguenots were panicked, and La Rochelle, the stronghold on the Atlantic coast for the Huguenot, was in revolt. For Louis and Richelieu, they wanted those Huguenot winds clipped before moving chinwards. So Buckingham and Charles, on the other hand, wanted to persuade Richelieu and his boss to reach an accommodation with the Huguenot that preserved the Edict of Nantes and the independence of La Rochelle and concentrate on the Habsburg instead. So it's a ways and means dispute. But Richelieu would essentially give Buckingham a bit of a diplomatic kicking with a bit of la perfidie française. So... Buckingham comes away with Henrietta Maria to bring her back to Blighty. He does not come away with what he really wanted too, a stated written military alliance with France, peace with the Hugues between the court and their people, and an active partnership in an anti-Habsburg conference. And he gives something away, a promise of English naval ships to be used as part of the Entente Cordiale, but only, repeat, only to be used against foreign enemies like Genoa, not internal ones like mm, French Protestants. Which is where la perfidie française comes in, because, of course, Richelieu had no intention of sticking to his word. There are only a few English merchantmen and one warship in the deal, as it happens. But when they do come to be used, the symbolic value was out of all proportion to their military value. Hey, Huguenots! Look who's here to reduce your town to rubble. Your so-called friends, les Anglais, perfidie. Ha, ha, what do you say to that then, rebellious pig dogs? They did the same number on the Dutch, as it happens in spades, actually. But Buckingham and Charles were equally pulled in two directions, towards the French court, who were the only ones really capable of giving the empires a bloody nose, and also to the Huguenots, who entirely possessed the hearts of the fiercely Protestant English Gen pub. Anyway, that's a bit in the future. For the moment, the buck had to go home empty-handed except for Henrietta Maria. Though before he did, there's a bit of romantic dalliance with Anne of Austria, the Queen, you know, Louis XIII's wife? Wife of the person with whom you're supposed to be making an alliance? The dalliance is in delightfully in the Dumas tradition. An evening walk in a wooded glade in Amiens. A chance meeting that wasn't chance at all between the Duc Anglais and the Reine Francaise. A gasp, a cry of alarm from Les Messieurs, a duke that had disappeared like a scared gazelle into the bushes never to be seen again. I mean, sacred blue governor. It's got Artemis written all over it. But diplomatically now, not a good move. 
Whenever the name Duke of Buckingham gets mentioned to Louis XIII, he probably displays that twitch that Clouseau's boss develops with his eyes before having a nervous breakdown. Anywho, Henrietta Maria, after the traditional pause at Channelport for the weather, arrived at Dover Castle to meet her husband. Now then, Henrietta Maria. There are two broad traditions about her in historiography in the blue corner. There is a deeply negative narrative that she perverts the king in the course of the civil wars, prots, rage against her as a Catholic viper biting at the heart of Protestant England, a fifth columnist. Some royalists, such as Clarendon, described her as a silly and frivolous and poor adviser of the king. After 1660, from the red corner, there's a more sympathetic narrative of the tragic queen, which gets a little mawkish, it has to be said. Quel désespoir! And all that sort of thing. Nowadays, of course, things are a bit more balanced. Information about her movements up to the civil wars is a little bit more limited than afterwards, but after she flies to France, there is a blizzard of correspondence between her and Charles to draw on. A few things, it seems to me, come across that we can hold on to. She is brave, thoughtful and assertive, definitely not a cipher, someone with opinions, and you might disagree with some of them a bit, but then show me the person who never puts a foot wrong during the civil wars, or indeed, just show me a person who never puts a foot wrong. She has a point of view, is the thing. The other thing is that she is indeed a child of her upbringing, the devil who worked on her hard and she sucked it up. She remained a determinedly and public Catholic with a desire to defend the rights and fortunes of English Catholics and, where possible, convert people. In the early years, this and the terms of her marriage contract would not help the public perception of the court any more than it would help the public perception of her. That contract required her to have a consistent and permanent access to her own form of Catholic worship, a commitment which was religiously adhered to, half half, a commitment to have her own Catholic household around her, which was not, and pious words about removing persecution of Catholics, which was always moonshine. As far as the public was concerned, having a king married to a French Catholic princess was only marginally less bad than having a king married to a Spanish Catholic princess. So when Charles prepared for his bride's visit by suspending the Catholic penal laws in May 1625, they were less happy with their new prince than they had been. When reports spread about the arrival of the new queen with a small, tight group of her closest, nearest and dearest Catholic friends and priests, well, a thousand of her nearest and dearest Catholic friends and priests, that is, there were even less uberglücklich. And when the streets around Whitehall and Hampton Court were home to Catholic priests in their robes and all, there was growing grumpiness. A year later, in June 1626, as part of her policy of fitting in, she very publicly went to Tyburn to pray for all the Catholic martyrs killed there. Don't think she went by Smithfield's. Balance wasn't her jam. So, although the negative press about Henrietta Maria has no doubt been upped by Protestant propaganda, it is not without foundation. However, let us remember that when she arrived at Dover, she was but 15, having been raised on the teaching of the more extreme form of militant Catholicism, was far away from home and all that she knew. A challenge for any 15-year-old, I would imagine. And she came with a sense of duty too. 
and part of the negative press that swirled around from France into her reputation would be that she reproved resistant in the future to the more harebrained of Richelieu's schemes. Anyway, it's the 13th of June 1625 and Charles heard that his wife was on English soil and he galloped post-haste to arrive at Dover around 10am apparently, which sounds a bit unlikely. When did he set off? How fast was that horse? Anyway, they met at the bottom of some stairs. She knelt to kiss his hand and said, Sir, I have come to this country for your majesty to use and command. Which is probably not necessarily true, but she may have thought it to be so at the time. There's a story that Charles looked down to say she was wearing heels, so she lifted her skirts and said something about needing no art to appear tall or whatever, which was a little scandalous ankle-viewing-wise and suitably French. Off they hopped to Canterbury, where the marriage was consummated. The following morning, Charles was apparently in high spirits. Henrietta was apparently gloomy. There were six weeks of partying back in London before the couple went to separate households. Well, by the end of six weeks, it's clear there were problems. And there would be for a while, to be honest. The Queen refused to take the English gentlewoman that Charles suggested into her household and thereby also snubbed Buckingham's mother, who was going to be one of them. Henrietta Maria constantly listened to her confessor's advice and to Pierre de Berulle. Charles complained to Buckingham that the monsieur that surrounded the Queen were ruining their marriage. There is a line of thought which goes that Buckingham was part of the problem and jealous of the new queen, poisoning his master's mind against her. His biographer strenuously denies this. But at the very least, it feels as though there were four parties to this marriage when it started. Charles, Henrietta Maria, a cloud of French priests and gentlefolk, and Buckingham. Just saying that when the number of parties was reduced to the more traditional and standard two, Charles and Henrietta Maria forget him like a house on fire, in a good way, as opposed to anything to do with arson or criminal behaviour, I mean. Right, so that's the domestics sorted. Now, politics, 1625 and Parliament. When Parliament, much delayed for various reasons, finally convened on the 18th of June, I think it is fair to say that, compelling though the prospect of a good chinwag would have been, Politics was not actually the first thing on MPs' mind. The first thing on MPs' minds was that they had been called up to London, a dirty, smelly place full of fish at the best of time. And although it might have been the best of times, it was also the worst of times, because there was a plague with a capital P. It had arrived on a boat from the Netherlands. Pah! Those Dutch, eh? By the end of the year, 70,000 people would be dead of it, 35,000 them in London alone, 10% of its population. So, the MPs wondered if they ought to be meeting at all, and could they go now, please? It would duly be a short session, and people frankly felt under pressure. Well, experienced and bred in Parliament he might have been, but Charles and Buckingham seemed to have both forgotten their learning, because the agenda of the government, by which I mean King and his Privy Council, did not really exist, or if it did, consisted of the rubric that follows, or something like it. King Charles and his Parliament of the Year of Our Lord, 1625. Agenda. 1. Get Parliament to vote me lots of spondulics. 2. Get Parliament to vote me customs dues, called tonnage and poundage, for life, as happens for every other king and queen. 
Three, get chicken on the way home. For a well-run parliament, it was necessary to manage them, particularly in England. That included pre-work, making sure the people you didn't want there didn't get selected as far as you could manage it, with a few well-designed words and a few well-selected earholes. It meant lining up a king's party, clients who would pop up and ask helpful questions, such as, Would the king's royal council agree that their prince is the brightest and best monarch England has ever had, and really deserves a lot of money to prosecute his war? That sort of thing with associated MPs around to growl rah, rah in approval. The sort of thing you can see in the UK Parliament at PMQs every week to this day. But probably Charles thought everything was just a shoo-in anyway. He was aware that the debt his father had so generously bequeathed him now amounted to a million quid, which is a poor position for which to fight a war, for which at least £300,000 would be needed just to maintain the Navy every year, so he rather assumed Parliament would just wave through a subsidy full of the same enthusiasm they had shown the previous year in providing a subsidy for Mansfield's expedition, the one which was basically in the process of being buried in the mud about now at the Siege of Breda. If he'd had his ear to the ground, he might have picked up trouble and rumour, though to be fair, if you put your ear to the ground in early modern London, you'd pick up something a good deal more terminal than trouble and rumour. There was one rumour that suggested the king was delaying his coronation so as not to have to take the requisite oaths which would give him an obligation to protect the laws or so that any laws passed in that parliament would be at the discretion of the king and not dependent on the general public authority. Now that's someone with a suspicious mind. Anyway, Charles started off by making what I think he may have considered an unanswerable point in his speech of the combined Houses of Commons and Lords, referring to the money that he required for war. The business that is to be treated of at this time is no new business, being already happily begun by my father of blessed memory. It was by your entreaties, your engagements, so that I pray you remember that this being my first action and begun by your advice and entreaty, what a great dishonour it were, both to you and me, if this action so begun should fail for that assistance you are able to give me. I must admit it's a compelling argument, surely. You asked for it, now pony up and pay for it. He does seem to have picked up some disquiet about religion too, which came from his suspension of the Catholic penal laws aforementioned and he moved to scotch them, to nip off the bud of fake news before it could burst into the flower of discord as a claim that he was not a keeper and maintainer of the true religion. There would indeed be fake news, he assured the representatives of English, English society. No man could ever be more desirous to maintain that religion than he. If there are consistent themes to Charles I's reign, there are none more consistent than this. Literally, Charles's protestations that he was a maintainer of the true religion of Elizabeth I have the consistency of a bowl of porridge. He was not faking. I promise you that. This is a statement Charles I believed as firmly as he believed that the sun would rise in the morning, even if it was behind a load of clouds. And yet, it was a statement 
received with constant suspicion, and you have to wonder why, because I will go to my grave, muttering from my deathbed to my grieving family gathered around me that Charles really believed what he was saying about defending the Church of England. He really did. Who's left the light on in the kitchen? We need to explain why this is, and I will, I promise. It is one of the keys, in my humble opinion, that unlocks the causes of the English version of the Civil Wars. Next time, maybe, next episode, if you ask me nicely. Anyway, he then rather undermined his message by having the opening sermon preached by his Bishop of St David's, one William Lord. William Lord, it should be said, was a noted anti-Calvinist, a lover of ceremony and an Arminian he chose to remind his listeners that kings ruled by divine right. So there's that. Next time we must come back to that as well. We'll do it along with the other thing I just mentioned. The ding will indeed hum. Scene set. The Parliament was still not in possession, really, of a clear view of exactly what was expected of them. Money. OK, yeah, got that. But how much? And how was it to be used? Now, as far as Charles was concerned, Parliament deserved to know that it would be used to give the Spanish a boot up the bum. But that is as far as the competence of Parliament went. The whys and wherefores were not for the little people. They belonged to the arcane mysteries of the king and his government. So, stick to your track, MPs. This stick to your track thing will also be a common cause for disputation and irritation in what lies ahead, because there were some who pointed out in 1625 that, look, we did what we were told last year and voted you a bag of cash, which is currently busy dying uselessly of starvation, plague and mud outside the walls of Breda. So this time, could you give us a bit more about how any more money we vote for will be used, because we need to be careful of the money the people of our countries will fork out. They're a tight bunch, you know, and they're relying on us to help them. And also, they said, we've been here three days now and people are dropping dead in the street in front of us covered in boils. This is making us uncomfortable. Can we do this some other time so I can go back to Loughborough where the air is less diseased? Well, the Privy Council persuaded them to stay. But darn it, if they didn't then kick off talking about religion and the case of an Arminian called Richard Montague who'd been causing upset with his religious claims. They did this sort of thing, Parliament. And I can understand Charles's annoyance. He tells them constantly what's required of them. And then darn me if like rabbits seeing a dandelion they didn't wander off in some other direction. It's like taking the dog for a walk. He will constantly try to chase pheasants instead of following me, Tusk. Or like children. Don't get me onto children. Why can't they just do what they're told. What is that all about? I mean, trust me, I'm a grown-up. Anyway, finally, finally, on the 30th of June, an MP called Francis Seymour suggested a subsidy and one fifteenth, which would raise about £100,000 worth. This was alarmingly low. Seymour, in fact, although being the first person to actually start talking about what he was supposed to be talking about, was not a fan of the government's track record on the war so far, and therefore was probably consciously lowballing. At which point the king's mouthpiece, one ben Benjamin Rudyard, objected, saying that would barely pay for the navy's supply of sun cream, but failed, crucially, to suggest a suitable amount. So thinking to save the situation for his master, Robert Phillips, a client of Buckingham, bravely stepped up into the breach and suggested two full subsidies, 
which would be about £140,000, at which point Buckingham's face was probably buried in his hands in despair as he sat in the House of Lords. Running the Navy for a year alone cost 300,000 quid and the debt bill was a million. Could we please up everything by a factor of 10? Phillips, meanwhile, was pointing that although this was about war, England hadn't actually technically declared war on Spain, yes. So technically this was a peacetime gift. And so this gift would express the affections of the subjects more than the value. There is no cause for more. And he hopes no man will press for more. They diminish the king that think money can give him reputation. The hearts of his subjects are his greatest honour. And reputation. Damn the hearts of my subjects, you might hear Charles saying. Just give me the money. And while the sound of Buckingham's weeping could be heard distinctly from the Lords, Charles actually accepted the subsidy, though, before his favourite could nobble him and tell him, no, they really needed more. So suddenly, Charles had the Secretary of State, John Cook, pop up and ask for more money, and that didn't go well. Then the tonnage and poundage vote went a bit pear-shaped too. The tradition was to vote these customs for life to a new monarch. But MPs were still smarting over Bate and his currents, if you remember those, and the impositions that James had made on customs dues during the reign without parliamentary consent. So... They wanted to redraft the bill and make sure the wording was absolutely right and watertight. Meanwhile, what with God's judgment making people drop like flies in the streets of London, MPs really wanted to leave and leave now before they made orphans of their families. So finally, they insisted the king prorogue Parliament and hurriedly voted the king his two subsidies, amounting to 140,000 quid, and tonnage and poundage for one year only, so that they could have the time to redraft the bill properly. It wasn't meant as a point not to give Charles his customs for life, just that they needed a bit more time to get the bill sorted. Charles did take that the wrong way, actually, and was insulted by the one-year thing, but he probably did the only thing he could at that point, and he did prorogue Parliament until August. To be held in Oxford, which didn't have the plague, well, it, it didn't in July and he hoped he could put things right in the meantime. But it is worth noting what his Scottish friend and adviser noted at the time. This is the Earl of Kelly, who wrote, You cannot believe the alteration in the opinion of the world touching his majesty. Essentially, the end of the honeymoon period had arrived already, between both the king and queen, and king and his people. Well, we'll see about that next week, when we must talk about Richard Montague as well as religion, always a hoot. Until that point, see you all in Oxford, Thanks for listening, and for all the comments and so on, good luck, and I hope you have a magnificent week full of joy and laughter. <laughs> <laughs>